Republicans changed their demands for first-hand impeachment witnesses. The GOP now wants first-hand witnesses who do not have walrus mustaches. <laughs> Vice President Mike Pence claims the Australian wildfires were set by General Soleimani. And citing fake history, Donald Trump claims the Constitution was not official, but just an unsigned draft. <laughs> I'm Carl Wolfson along with Dylan Hyde. Welcome back, Dylan, Kim Upham, and Paul Block, our Wolfpack podcast is produced by Patrick Zahn, coming to you from the Steel Door and Lane Galleries in beautiful Northwest Portland. Hi, gang. Hey. Hey. Hi, Carl. Yeah. Uh, For those of you who haven't been following the news very closely, that last quote-unquote joke refers to the Three Stooges uh, Trump administration who evidently sent uh, a letter to the uh, Iraqi foreign minister saying that, indeed, since the Iraqi parliament voted to expel United States troops, that the United States would honor that. Now, according to the administration and Trump, that was just an unsigned draft. How does that unsigned draft, to that extent, escape and I like how when they asked for comment about it, they said, well, we, we need to read it first before we make a comment. Yeah. Well, and the first time I heard the news story, it led with the content of the letter. And my first thought was, well, what a thoughtful and well-written article. What a surprise that you put something out like that. And the next sentence is, they're saying it was a mistake. I'm like, well, of right. course it was a mistake. Right. And you can imagine how confused, if we're confused how confused our allies around the world are, which is par for the course in this administration. Well, yeah, because they don't and, speak English. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, as you know, uh, Trump is impulsive, the bull in the china shop. He does whatever he wants uh, and orders people to do what he wants without thought many times, most times, I'd say, for consequences or in lieu of a long-term strategy. Let's get right into that first question, Paul, which uh, alludes to this. Well, I will. I just want to say first, I feel like Rachel Maddow. Uh, every time she says she has a whole show planned and then hears the news and she has to throw it away and start it all over again. That's how I feel today. I can see on your toes. I can tell you uh, 10 years of doing a, a live uh, morning radio broadcast. I can't count the times I was all prepped. Something happened like Saddam Hussein uh, was captured or, um, or Osama bin Laden was killed. Tear it up. Start again. I cannot tolerate that. Nobody's allowed to move my <laughs> cheese. They moved my cheese. So before we anyway. get into the question, then let me just uh, let everyone know as we go on the air tonight in the form of a podcast, uh, Iran has evidently fired two uh, about 12 ballistic missiles into two Iraqi air bases with American troops. We don't know at this point if there are any casualties at all, Iraqi or American. Uh, Iran says if there is retaliation from the United States, they will attack Dubai and the United Arab Emirates, and they will attack Haifa and Israel, and they will attack in the United States. Uh, oil prices have soared uh, after this attack tonight, and uh, Dow futures are tumbling. Except uh, for defense stocks. And um, I, I last heard that Trump is supposed to address the nation tonight. I last heard he and, canceled it. Yeah, okay. Well, of course, he had an he had an unsigned draft to address the nation. <laughs> he wants to be all commander in chiefy. So. Well, I think he's probably waiting for his chief advisors, Stephen Miller and Jared Kushner, <laughs> to show up in Washington. Mm-hmm. They have to dump their hoods. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, Jared Kushner was to uh, formulate and implement this great peace plan for the Middle East. And I would say Stephen Miller's advice was brown, uh, bomb as many brown people as you can, just being honest about it. Uh, let's get to the question. Well, to, to the question that we had uh, getting ready to deal with, what will the consequences of Trump's decision to assassinate Iranian General Soleimani both in the Middle East and among U.S. workers. Voters. The voters, I'm sorry, not workers. Well, workers and voters. Uh, uh, what are the consequences that we're going to have? Uh, We've seen a few to tonight. Man, have we ever. Dylan? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's unsettling. I mean, it's easy to sit here in the United States and feel really insular and really safe. But when you turn on your television set and you see thousands of people chanting death to America, um, it's unsettling. And I think people are going to start feel, feeling that. And we're going to see attacks. I don't know what form they're going to take yet. And when people start seeing Americans dying, whether they're here domestically or in bases overseas, and the split screen is Donald Trump saying, well, if it happens, it happens. I think even the most hardened Trump supporters are going to be jarred by this. Um, and I, you know, I look at this attack. It's 
Um, it, I think it'd be the equivalent of the Germans killing Dwight Eisenhower in 1950. Yeah, it's just what I, I mean, we don't have anybody in our society like um, Soleimani. There's nobody like that. So it's hard for us in 2020 to think about who that would be. But if someone did that and then to hear the Department, the, the Secretary of Defense go on there on TV today and say, Iranians need to not escalate things. They needed to accept it and move on. Just, it's, we need to remember these are human beings too. If someone did this to our country, how would we respond? It's unrealistic. We have pushed them in a corner. Their backs are against the wall, and we can expect bad things to happen. A week ago, Iranians all over Iran and many cities in Iran were rioting against the Iranian government. 400, I believe, were killed by the Iranian mm-hmm. government. Today, every Iranian in Iran is 100% in solid unity with their government that was attacked by the United States. In Iraq, Iraqis were demonstrating, get the Iranians out of this country, get the militias out of this country. Now, the Iraqis have turned around and said, get Americans out of this country. Paul, you're absolutely right. I mean, they've Trump has undermined his own policy. The whole plan was to sanction the hell out of them so that the people would hate their government, uprise it, and we get regime change. And now, exactly what you talked about, now they're rallying behind their government. The government's more secure than they've been in years. I think that part of his calculus was uh, he got a lot of positive feedback from taking out al-Baghdadi, and I'm sure he thinks that, hey, just take out you know people and with a, a strike, and uh, he's going to get positive feedback. And I think this is going to be a lot different. And you know, Kim, he hastened to, to mention, Trump did, that George Bush didn't do it, Barack Obama didn't do it, but right. he... Did it. Because they aren't morons and he right. is. You know, it's interesting. I had a couple thoughts, which I uh, I haven't heard pointed out yet. Um, remember Trump's outrageous claim that Obama created ISIS by yes. pulling out of Iraq? By his own logic then, Trump has reinvigorated ISIS by pulling out of both northern Syria and Iraq. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you saw Secretary of State Pompeo on the Sunday talk shows, but this was one of his uh, big quotes. The Iranian people will welcome this, meaning the assassination. Hmm. To me, this echoes Vice President Cheney, quote, in Iraq, we will be greeted as as liberators. Uh, And let's remember that so far as we know, this assassination, the the justification for it, as we know right now, until proved otherwise, is based on lies. Trump said the assassination was to prevent Americans from being killed. Where is the proof that, that Soleimani was plotting attacks? They Pompeo actually went on CNN and said it's not relevant to reveal these the imminence of these attacks on U.S. interests. I don't think there were any. And by the way, let me pause and say, as everyone seems to say, Soleimani may have been well regarded, but I shed no tears over his death. But assassinating him is so counterproductive. Uh, I will also mention that it's Demo- also not law- lawful unless there is that imminent threat. That's right. And, you know, what they're saying is that it's self-defense. It can't, it's not assassination if it's self-defense. But that's a great point, Kim. But we haven't seen any evidence that it was self-defense, i.e., we haven't seen evidence given by this administration to the Congress and to the public that an attack was imminent. Right. So Why now? How, how can it be self-defense? And Democrats in Congress were not consulted in advance. I love what Steve Schmidt said on MSNBC yesterday. A country goes to war, not a political party. Again, this is Trump being impulsive. There's no indication that he thinks through his actions or has a long-term strategy. And one more lie, Vice President Pence claimed in a tweet on Friday that Soleimani, quote, assisted in the clandestine travel to Afghanistan of 10 of the 12 terrorists who carried out the 9-11 attacks in the United States, unquote. That is a lie. And there weren't 12 terrorists. There were 19 of them. Most came from Saudi Arabia, which is Trump's big buddy. That's exactly right. And Carl, I want to add on what you were talking about, the imminent threat point. Um, The Department of Defense, when this first happened, their first press release said this was an act of deterrence. Well, is it an act of deterrence or was it to stop an imminent threat? It seems like it's pretty tough to be both. And the second thing is, if it's an imminent threat, the attack is supposed to eliminate the imminent threat. Are we to believe the general was the person who's going to carry it out or that somehow this is a secret plan that only he knew about and that by killing him, he was taking the plan to the grave? So one, there's no evidence that it was an imminent threat. And two, if it was, how is this going to fix the problem? If anything, it's going to exacerbate it. You brought up Eisenhower. If Eisenhower got killed by the Germans the day before D-Day, 
That wasn't going to stop D-Day. Eisenhower had 20 assistants. This guy, Soleimani, has lieutenants. Has They have already appointed a guy to take over for him who may even be smarter and more vicious than Soleimani is. What Trump should have done if he if there were an imminent threat, okay? He there should have been a clandestine action to eliminate the 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 weapons, the materiel, the planning for an imminent attack, not take out he right. may be a terrorist, but he is a revered figure in Iran. That was an impulsive act. And and are we to your point, Dylan, are the American people so naive as to think that after Soleimani's death, someone just as capable will mm-hmm. not fill that spot? Already did. It's what happens with ISIS every time. Right. right. So I've got three things on my list of uh, anticipated effects of this. First, internationally, uh, destabilize the region, which we're already seeing happening, which Mm -hmm. it's a region that we refer to as a powder keg to begin with. Uh, Unite Iran and Iraq against the United States. Who could have thought that anybody could accomplish that? And thirdly, uh, to put our troops and U.S. citizens living abroad in harm's way. And we're already seeing that happening. Uh, Is this, as Pompeo and Trump and um, their admirers say, going to make Americans safer? Well, obviously not. I mean, we've seen tonight, um, again, we don't know all the details of this uh, purported Iranian attack on these two bases in Iraq. But on Sunday, Iran announced that, that it would know it's now going to continue uranium enrichment, which was, you know, the, the key victory of that multilateral right. deal that was inked under the Obama administration. Verifiable. OK, uh, they've already voted their parliament to expel U.S. troops. Um, and of course, he says he wants to fight ISIS. How are we going to do that? When he's turning over, uh, he's relinquishing any American influence in the region. Um, there, the, one of the worst things Trump did is say that he was going to attack these 52 sites in Iran, threatened to do it, which included cultural sites, which is in violation of the Geneva Convention. Now he, after the defense secretary, Mike Esper, said no. Uh, and the American people, uh, at least the ones that I saw, were in, in Congress and on the streets were saying we can't violate the Geneva Convention. Now Trump has backtracked that. He doesn't know what war crimes are. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what the Geneva Convention is. He doesn't know what our Constitution says. He doesn't listen to military advisors. This is a dangerous man. We're seeing more evidence of it tonight. He doesn't care. No. You know, I want to defend Trump a bit. Um, wow. <clears throat> I know, right? Um this isn't the first time that the we've had presidents ignore the War Powers Act. Oh, of course, uh, both parties do. Yeah, 1986, Reagan attacked Libya in retaliation for bombing that injured Americans. Did not go to Congress for it or the world uh, community. In 1999, I believe Clinton launched airstrikes in Yugoslavia without proper notice to Congress uh, in order to stop a genocide. Obama authorized strikes again in Libya in 2011 um, and argued that the War Powers Act simply didn't apply to what he did. And so there's there's been a pattern of this, but I, I think it's important to distinguish, for, you know, because Republicans are saying everyone does this. This is not a big deal. Those past actions were, I think, were a lot different um, because, one, they are a much smaller scale than what we just saw. They weren't likely to lead to an all-out war with a foreign country. And the interests of America were obvious in those instances. The interests of America being served by this are anyone's best guess. We haven't seen it yet. You know, you're absolutely right about the War Powers Act because presidents of both parties only invoke it when they need to. Mm-hmm. When they want to put the onus on Congress for a problem, not on themselves. I would say, though, where I'd quibble with you, Dylan, is I don't think you're defending Trump. I think you're, you're, right. I'm not. you're not defending what he did because, obviously, if you've listened up to this point and you're following the news, he has botched this thing from, from day one. I think what you're doing, though, is I'd put the uh, blame on, on, on both executive, uh, both presidents and Congress, presidents for taking too much power and for Congress for not right. standing up for the power that is given to them in the Constitution to wage war. That we've been going back and forth on for too many years now. So I'd like to hear what you guys think about the domestic effects of this. We talked, that was the first part of the question. Paul, what's the international, want, yeah, Paul, what's Paul, the domestic? Paul, before we get to that? No, I only wanted to point out that he, he has lost Tucker Carlson. <laughs> Tucker Carlson said it was a stupid thing to do, it was dangerous, and he's playing to the chest beaters of America. Tucker Carlson, as as, as get in line with Trump as anybody I know, has gotten out of line with Trump. Um, so to Kim's question, uh, thoughts on – my my initial reaction is um, 
Trump and and Republicans will uh, already they're saying that the Democrats should forget about impeachment, get behind the commander in chief. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, I think, has postponed a vote on the War Powers Act for several weeks. He's going to play the uh, you know the commander in chief card and try to rally people. We have been down this road many many times. There may be. There may be some initial uh, consolidation of support behind Trump because uh, because it's America. I get that. Not for me. But between now and November, what is the landscape going to look like? As Dylan said at the beginning, mm-hmm. if Americans start getting killed in big numbers, if there are threats, and uh, by the way, Americans were killed in Kenya. I don't know that there was yeah. any connection. Uh, Iran didn't take. Um, I think it was Al Shabab that took Al Shabab. But um, Trump's whole thing is, I did this to make America safer. My point and Dylan's point is, as we go on each day, each week, each month, and see that Americans aren't safer, that a region that that could have been moving in, in, with multilateral agreements to some period uh, uh, of um, stability relative to the Middle East is now a match has been thrown into that tinderbox. Right. We don't know if Israel is going to be involved. We don't know if Saudi Arabia will be involved. We don't know if Iran attacks other nations, uh, whether those nations will declare war. This is a dangerous region, the most dangerous region on earth. And you now meld that with a president who has no sense of history and no sense of clear strategy. And I might point out that Israel is a nuclear power. Mm-hmm. And when faced with 80 million Persians uh, with guided missiles and, and, and people running across hills and things, I wouldn't be a bit surprised to see some tactical nukes being used. And I, I want to remind our listeners that this is the president who promised a secret 30-day plan to eliminate ISIS. We're now on, we've been there more than a thousand days we've had Trump in office. Not only is ISIS still there, but now because of this actions, we have stopped all of our offensive efforts against ISIS because now all of our resources in the Middle East have taken a defensive posture against the attacks that we know are coming. Well, One he claimed say, to who, get us out of foreign wars, right? Yes. <laughs> right. Who are the winners here? ISIS is one of the winners here. Mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda yes. is a winner also here. Another winner. Russia is a winner here. Maybe Turkey is a winner here. Uh, all those people that, that, that we're having problems with and trying to settle down the Middle East, they are all the winners. We are the loser. The Iraqis, I think, are the losers. Yeah. I feel bad for the Iraqis. They're stuck in the middle, man. They're stuck between Iran on one side and America on the other side. And- if America, now they have an occupying force they can't get rid of. And, but if they do get rid of America as an occupying force, Iran will run them over. Mm-hmm. And so, think of the Kurds in Iraq who are already, um, you know, already reeling from Trump's abandonment of the Kurds in Syria. Since you mentioned Israel, what's been noted is how muted in response Benjamin Netanyahu has been. You would think uh, he would be all over this well, attack. He's praised it. Yeah, but not yeah, but, to the extent yeah, not, you would think. Right. And this, he has also let slip, slip the fact that Israel is a nuclear power. He said that on an interview and then sort of smiled and backed up from it. You know, they've never officially said it. This was the first time it was even hinted by a prime minister of the com- if, country. If you take online quizzes and one will be named the nuclear powers, uh, there will always be a question next to Israel because they have never said they have nuclear weapons. It's assumed they do. Um, but, you know, I, I just see no upside to this mm-hmm. for no. the, the region, for our, our country. And you know that, that Trump is going to play this politically, you know, for all it's worth. He wants consolidation behind him as the uh, standard bearer for the country, the commander in chief. Well, you know, did, I, you, did uh, you see the New York Times anecdote about how this even came to happen? Yeah, they talked about not. it on the Daily Podcast. Okay, they said that the Pentagon has a ready list mm-hmm. of retaliatory uh, things that could happen, right. and they have a, a range. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they always put in a few extreme things in there to guide the decision maker back to the middle so that they're going to pick some sort of focus on well, the solution that they and, want them to pick. And my understanding in this situation, they added the one killing uh, the general because it was so they wanted him to pick a really harsh response. So they put a really deep anchor onto that list of killing the general and they ended up him walking out of the meeting saying kill the general. And well, his staff was shocked by it. They said that first he chose a 
a much less, they, he chose an option that was not extreme like that. And mm-hmm. then he came back and I think that they uh, said that he was thinking about Benghazi at the time and <laughs> came, came back and said, no, we're going to take this guy out. So why did he do this? Why did Trump do this? Well, I, I want to raise the question. In the past, when we've had nut jobs as our president or people that we didn't have faith in or people that were not smart enough to do the job in the way that we wanted them to, we said, okay, well, they're surrounded by smart people, and that's mm-hmm. what matters. Right. There's people with experience, smart people. They're going to guide them. They're going to be the guardrails to make sure they don't do things that are stupid. And I feel like people are not having confidence. This is a different era, right? right? Like. There's a guardrails are gone. The guardrails are gone, and we got a nut job. You know, now we, what? We, we just found out a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that um, when uh, Britain um, was uh, going to target a Russian oligarch or spy or something, I have to get the details. Trump spent all the time telling Theresa May, "This is a good guy," because Putin told me he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he has no people around him to, as you say, Kim. Uh, tamp him down from his craziness. Most of those guardrails have long since fallen, and now he, we're in a we're we're in a crisis uh, of his making. But um, you know, I have no confidence that uh, he's going to listen to anyone. He's going to try to bull his way mm-hmm. through this with his uh, his own particular brand of insanity. Well, you know, Kim pointed out to me that I hadn't seen this. She pointed out to me in the Paul Krugman's piece this week, and I just want to pull a quote from this. I thought it was so on point. Um, Paul Krugman Krugman writes, "Quote." From his first days in office, Trump has acted on the apparent belief that he could easily intimidate foreign governments, that they would quickly fold and allow themselves to be humiliated. That is, he imagined that he faced a world full of Lindsey Grahams willing to abandon all dignity at the first hint of a challenge. Close quote. There you go. And, and what he's finding out is that these leaders answer to people that aren't global, like South Carolinians who support Lindsey Graham every time, and they're not going to allow their governments to be bullied. And so when he tries to pull a move like this and they push back— He's so naive that he's surprised by it. You know, to answer your question, Paul, I think he did it because, hey, look, I'm a tough guy. Bush didn't take out Soleimani. <laughs> Obama didn't do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this guy out and, and uh, you know, and, and of course, he's never had to face personal consequences for anything in his life. Right. I mean, others face consequences. He declares bankruptcy, the workers, the people who are owed money, Six the women that, that he people. rapes and sexually assaults. Uh, they have to bear the scar, but never him. He'll never admit to that. Um, his racism knows no boundaries. This is a man. It, it, why do you even ask the question of why he would do this? He doesn't care. Well, it was sort of a rhetorical question because I had a few answers. Okay. One of the answers is that he thinks this is going to give him glory. He thinks this is going to give him a legacy. Mm-hmm. He thinks that it's cool to be a war president. And he also thinks that this will enhance his ability to stay in the presidency. Well, and he, th- he thinks it will change the subject from impeachment, which it has. And the, Right. And, and it, it take us away from impeachment. By the way, the Brits have already told us that if we go to war in Iran, we're on our own. They're not going with Good. us. You know, um, I want to say one thing before we maybe wrap up this subject. No, I can't wrap it up. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump tweeted uh, a few days ago, quote, these media posts will serve as notification." He's tweeting this to the United States Congress that should Iran strike any U.S. person or target, the United States will quickly and fully strike back and perhaps in a disproportionate manner. Such legal notice is not required but is given nonetheless. I love the response in a tweet from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, quote, This media post will serve as a reminder (laughs) that war powers reside in the Congress under the United States Constitution and that you should read the War Powers Act and that you're not a dictator, unquote. Wow, that's amazing. Do you know how many times Congress has declared war in our nation's history? Not many. Five. Yeah. Wow. So obviously we're not using that as we should. I know it's I'm World War One and World War Two. I left out one important thing. I think Trump thinks if we're a war, he can have a really successful military parade in Washington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm hoping that all the MAGA hat wearers will sign up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Please, please sign think? up. Go overseas. Uh, a little trivia for you. The first woman elected to the Congress of the United States, actually she was elected before women had the right to vote nationally, but they had it in certain states, uh, was Jeanette Rankin, Jeanette Rankin of Montana. Montana. Um, in her one term, uh, her first term, uh, she voted against American entry into World War One. She voted against the declaration of war, as you mentioned, Dylan. And uh, she lost. Some years later, she was elected again for one term and voted against 
our entry into World War II. Interesting. Uh, when that declaration of war was considered by Congress. So she remains the only member of Congress to have voted against both World War, our entry into World War I and World War II. Not, not a badge of honor. Well, just a reminder that Obama— Well, it, uh, a badge of honor for World War I. We had no business in right, that war, World but War II. World War II. Right. Well, she was 50%. <laughs> Just a reminder that Obama said that if every country had a female leader for two years, we'd be a lot better off. And uh, just a reminder, by the way, that uh, unless we already mentioned that, that Trump actually was did a commercial a long time ago uh, saying that he wouldn't be surprised at all to see Obama go to war in Iran so that he could be elected president. <laughs> that I, 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 I would bet that for every... Every decision, I'd say for 80 to 90 percent of the decisions Trump has made, uh, you can go back and find a tweet where he criticized Obama for doing a similar thing. I don't know if I've ever said this, but I really despise Trump. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, loathsome. Uh, he is yeah. loathsome. And, and uh, I think we should move along. Though, well, let me because say, I'm starting to get sick seeing yeah, his face in I, my mind. I, well, I, I was there a long time ago. You're listening to the Wolfpack, uh, our podcast. Wolfpackpdx.com is our website. You can listen on Google Play, on iTunes, and on Spotify. As Kim reminds me, um, most of, I guess all three of those sites have a place where you can rate this podcast. And on a night like this, where bombs are falling in the Middle East and uh, wildfires are uh, out of control in Australia um, and fed by the effects of climate change, please, if you believe that this administration is not representing you – uh, pass this uh, podcast on to your friends and neighbors, co-workers. We would appreciate it. Go ahead, Paul. Which brings up the second subject of the evening, and that's the fires in Australia. Uh, will, the, will the devastating Australian wildfires cause any climate change deniers to wake up? Uh, uh, and I guess, I guess this is probably the, even more than Trump, uh, more of an existential a uh, question about the existence of humanity on long, long range. Uh, humanity and all life on the planet. And all life mm -hmm. on the planet. Um, uh, anybody have any thoughts? I, uh, I wrote simply in my notes, God, I hope so, <laughs> before it's in their backyard. I don't I, know what it's going to take, honestly. The first thing I wrote in my notes is, no, it's not going to change any one of them. Uh, the people who uh, who who, are, who uh, oppose doing anything about the climate, they say the climate's changed before. This is no different. They say it's not that bad a thing. They say there's no scientific consensus about uh, uh, climate change. They say actually it's cooling. Look at these snowballs we can bring into Congress. Uh, they say animals and plants can adapt. They say ocean acidification is not serious. <laughs> they say sea level rise is exaggerated. They say climate scientists are in it for the money. So now these people, do you think that a bunch of fucking, a bunch of, I'm sorry. That's fine. A bunch of fires in Australia are going to make them change their mind? Um, let me just jump in here because before we go too much further, I want to read a uh, a sentence from the Australian Bureau of Meteorology. Quote, climate change is increasing bushfire risk in Australia by lengthening the fire season, mm -hmm. decreasing precipitation, and increasing temperature. Those of us in the western United States, we come to you from Portland, Oregon, Oregon know this very well. I moved here from um, California. Fires become catastrophic blazes because there are warmer temperatures, there's more fuel because there's dry vegetation, there's less water because of more evaporation. And um, southern Australia, I will add, uh, has seen this kind of warming up 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit since 1950, which makes conditions ripe for not just fires but catastrophes. I am a, a, a tiny bit more optimistic because I've been kind of keeping an eye on what's happening in Australia uh, politically as a result of this, the, you know, the prime minister, Scott Morrison, is a – he's pretty much a climate change denier. Let's just say he doesn't feel the need to act uh, to mitigate the effects of ch climate, climate change. But I have seen a, a rallying cry among the Australian people right now as they deal – with uh, so many acres, roughly the size of West Virginia, already burned 15 million acres. I know this breaks our hearts, but a billion pets, mm -hmm. uh, not pets, but a billion animals. It breaks uh, my heart. Uh, really have, have died as well as 25 people. 2,000 homes have been destroyed. I see some kind of movement now in Australia that are asking Scott Morrison if this or any government, conservative or labor, is not going to face up to this reality 
um, uh, uh, where, where we're rendering human uh, survival here, human settlement, uh, null and void, what will it take to move you? Um, so I, I hear people say failure uh, by this administration or Australian leaders to address this now will exact a heavy political price. And that's the answer to all this until mm-hmm. voters get out there and chuck out Republicans in this country and chuck out uh, uh, climate change deniers and science deniers. Then we're going to see some action. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, and by the way, one last thing. I posted virtually what uh, each of you has said on on a three Facebook posts today that on this issue alone, Republicans should be voted out of office. Absolutely. They are oh, yeah. either denying the science of climate change or they are refusing to act to save not just humanity but all life on this planet. And the responses, of course, these are like-minded people. But someone said uh, two responses that I really liked. One woman said, um, I consider this a crime against humanity. I like that language. Uh, Ignoring the signs of climate change, doing nothing, inaction, a crime against humanity. And someone said, we need to shove this down Republicans' throats till they choke on it. And I want to see that as part of this campaign um, from beginning to end and beyond the election. This has to be a movement now. And by the way, Australia acted after the Port Stanley massacre. They took guns away from people, and they did make a, a huge difference. In the, they, they took away a million guns from Australians, and they have acted before. So maybe this will uh, spur them on, and hopefully they can uh, act as an example for the world. The Great Barrier Reef is dying next to Australia, one of the greatest uh, uh, food and oxygen producers yeah, in the world. If the seas die, we die. I'm, seas I, die, we I'm die. wondering what they see in their Facebook feeds, and this is why. In my Facebook feed, it's all Iraq. I know we have red Facebook and blue Facebook, but in my, face, <laughs> my exactly Facebook right. feed, it's all Iraq and Iran and burnt koalas and other marsupials. And I mean, and I'm bombarded not, with like... It's, and it's, it's not wrenching. Oregon. Well, I mean, let me tell you about my Facebook feed. Um, I had a friend, and I'm going to use the word friend in quotes, um, make a joke this week about leaving his pickup uh, running this morning, running the morning to warm up and leaving it for an extra long time. And then below it was a picture of Greta Thunberg with a sad face. He thought that was really funny. Um, that's what we're up against. Um, there is an island off the coast of Maryland called Deal Island. Uh, it's, a, it's a sea town that was settled 300 years ago. And over the last couple decades, the sea levels have been eating up more and more of this island. Property is being, is being lost. Homes are having to buy generators to pump water out of their first floors. Um, each year, the problem is getting worse. Businesses are being closed down. And there's a d- debate on the island as to what's happening. You, the people on the island predominantly are conservative and think this is not climate change. This is erosion. <laughs> Never mind that for the first 280 years in the island, this wasn't a problem. In the last 20 years, it's becoming a significant problem. And uh, there's, you, you can go to YouTube and, and uh, look up uh, Deal Island. You'll find videos of the, of the homeowners viciously defending conservative policies because they don't believe that they think it's fake news. These people, these climate change deniers, have a social and psychological perspective that is so wrapped around being a Republican and that's anti-science that they will not allow themselves to agree with a Democrat or a liberal egghead, even if it means their own life is being destroyed. Uh, And so I think some minds are going to be changed, and I think enough minds will be changed that we start to do something. The question, though, is, is it going to be too little, too late? We have to outvote these bastards. Why why Um, the pushback? Why the blowback? Why the insistence that there is no climate change that's hurting us? I'll answer that. And I was thinking about this. I was getting this. ready to, but I'd love to hear you. <laughs> um, um, never at a loss for words. Um, I, I was listening to Dylan talk about his quote, friend, quote unquote friend on Facebook. Uh, what, and this is exactly what Trump does. He doesn't just disagree with progressive policy or science or common sense policy. He takes delight in mocking it. Mm-hmm. And if you've, you know, I probably listen to more right wing radio and watch more Fox than most of you out there because I was a radio host for 10 years and I had to do my due diligence and at least pay some attention to what was going on. And um, what's grown up through 35, 40 years of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News is no critical discussion of anything. It's, um, it's just firebombs. That's what they're doing. 
uh, they've radicalized people, and now we have the ultimate nominee for president and president of the United States who has been radicalized by this process. They enjoy poking liberals in the face. They don't care about science. They don't care about the fate of the planet. As long until, as they can own and, the libs. Right. And, and, until it, you know, the people who in Alabama and Oklahoma and Arkansas, when a tornado comes, they're all very happy to see FEMA show up in the federal government. Um, so, look, we just have to outvote them. And we have to continue to put it out there what the effects of climate change are, what the science says. And most of the countries of the world agree with the four of us here. They don't agree with Trump. Uh, we pulled out of the Paris Accords. Uh, and the, the two accords that he pulled out of, the Iranian multilateral treaty, and we're seeing the results of that now, and the Paris Accords, these are going to have and are having effects that are so bad for our country and the world and will continue uh, to be bad for the country and the world until we get someone with common sense and intelligence into the White House. I also want to point out that, that, that people with the most money and power in the United States are people who currently own trillions and trillions of dollars worth of fossil fuels that are under the ground, that if they can't take it out, they don't get their money. And they figure if they can get it out and they can make all the money they're going to make, they can buy the mountaintops with the fresh water running, running through it and the rest of the world can just go to hell and drown and starve and burn up. Uh, they're going to have enough to make it through themselves. And, and That's my belief. Bunkers. Bunkers in Nebraska. And, and, and how far are we away, by the way, from Republicans saying, Oh, because oil prices have gone up and the oil supply might be interrupted because of what's going on in the Middle East. Let's drill in Anwar. You know, that's you what bet. they're going to say. And more fracking. Right. Well, by well, the way, yeah. the, 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 only, the other thing is America's got to get off of meat. They've got to get off of meat. <laughs> All right. Before we go down that rabbit hole. Um, look, I, I think I actually think the, the trend is good for understanding um, the significance of what we face here. What we need are leaders to offer the American people enlightened answers. And I go back to what was said, I don't know, five, six episodes ago. People don't want to spend money for fuel costs, but um, it's been proved, uh, and George H.W. Bush signed this bill that Republicans or the Democrats passed in the House and Senate uh, to have a, a, a market-based cap-and-trade system which eliminated acid rain. It can be done, mm -hmm. and there are a million things that can be done that will improve our economy, and we can lead the world in the uh, march to the renewable energy future. We just need leadership. The and the problem states is, are doing right, it. The right, states are doing right. it. And there's too much money against it. Right. And I think that's, you know, rather than this, rather than save the planet, people are starting to say, now, where can we find another planet to live on? <laughs> you know, how many spaceships do we need to find another planet a few trillion miles away that we can move a couple of thousand people and start over again? Yeah, I saw Carl Bernstein is maybe a year ago when they were uh, during the Mueller investigation and people were exasperated about, you know, how, how Trump was withholding documents from Congress. Republicans weren't, you know, admitting anything. And he said, there's no substitute for just keep on. You got to keep on digging as a journalist. You keep, uh, keep on advocating. Uh, if you're an, an American, you just got to, you just, and even for people who don't, I use the word scholarship. The people like your quote-unquote friend, they're not interested in critical thinking or scholarship. They're just not. Mm -hmm. But those of us who do engage in critical thinking and scholarship need to just keep raising our voices, keep organizing, because the facts are with us. The future has to be the way we see it, or we're all going to go down. And, Carl, it's not just Fox that's the problem. The mainstream media is a problem, too, because we have this – uh, view of impartiality and fairness. Mm -hmm. So if there's 100 people, 100 scientists, and 98 of them believe that climate change exists and is man-made, and two of them who are funded by Chevron do not, they will interview the two that do not and two that do. And well, so I, that's considered to be balanced I, media. I understand but that. But there's absolutely no representation of, right. like, there is a consensus. One of the reasons Hillary Clinton is not president is she made the mistake of telling the truth, saying the coal industry mm -hmm. is over. They we're not getting those jobs the, back. The most eloquent speech 
about coal is dead came from long t- a, a, a governor of West Virginia and then a longtime U.S. senator from West Virginia, Jay Rockefeller, who only did this after he announced that he would not run again. Mm-hmm. That's when the truth came out from him. Um, and again, who is it calling for Trump to be impeached on the Republican side? It's former Republicans and former office holders like Slade Gorton up in Washington. We need courageous leadership. We need to demand courage from our leaders. We need patriots in the Congress. They won't do it because the price of admission to the Republican Party is 100% fealty to Trump. More reason we we should shove this down their throats till they choke on it and we will not shut up. I agree with you very much. Uh, People need to start calling their members of Congress and their senators and particularly we need people in red states. Climate change will drastically alter this planet, kill many people, kill all the animals, kill the seas, kill the air. What's left, folks? Um, Let me just make this statement as we transition to our third question tonight. Um, The most response I got from the last episode, episode 17, was many people were very pleased to hear me say... (laughs) Uh, knowing my knowing my uh, fierce partisanship that has gone on before about Democrats, uh, that I will, without reservation and 100 percent, support the nominee of the Democratic Party. We all need to do that. Even, even, even Bernie. If it's, and, yeah. and if it's Bernie Sanders, I will be out there as Bernie Sanders' biggest supporter. Can Count we start? Every, can we start every, every episode with you saying that? Yeah. <laughs> That was a but, New Year's resolution. But we I, sat at this I, table I, and talked I, about I, them. I, I can only ask in return that if someone other than Bernie is the nominee, that that same kind of commitment in effort come from those who may not like Joe Biden or absolutely. may not like Pete Buttigieg. Oh, absolutely. We have to have that. And I would only say that if your candidate doesn't win the nomination, here's an exercise for you. Why don't you – support the nominee, double or triple or quadruple the energy as you did for your own favorite in the race. As we said last week, this has to be run as a party, a principled party. This has to be run as a campaign of ideas to stop the most corrupt, inept president from ruining our country and world anymore. There is no room anymore for division that ends up killing the Democratic Party. There is room for debate, and we continue to have robust debate. We continue to have our favorites and give money to our favorites. But when that convention is held and that nominee goes out on the hustings, we must support that nominee, he or she, a thousand percent. What is our next question? Can I add one thing? This is an idea that I have that maybe would be kind of cool if it caught on. I plan on betting a great deal of money on Trump winning the presidency. Because you're generally unlucky. <laughs> Are you talking about I'm, predicted? I know. I'm hedging my bets. And then if I were to win that bet, yeah. which I would not want to win that bet, I would use the winnings of that to donate it to my local Democratic Party. Good and man. if we can get a lot of people doing this and Trump wins, we can just start off with, you know, a billion dollar <laughs> well, money ball. I, I really never have heard that strategy. Wow. Before. That's but, I mean, really if, fascinating. And if, and if he wins, I mean, you got something to celebrate. Now, how are you investing this in Vegas? Are you investing it with, quote unquote, Facebook friends? There are there are betting houses um, based out of London and yeah. Vegas. You can bet these and they have odds on this stuff. Hmm. Uh, before we move on to the next question, I would like to point out that when you hear this, <laughs> that's Carl <laughs> being... Emphatic and pointing at the table. We need to give him like a gavel or something. Yes. Uh, Uh, I think I said before, the the first time I really got called on this was after the Virginia Tech massacre. Um, I've long been a gun control advocate. And and by the way, go back and see Lyndon Johnson's speeches about gun control in the 1960s. They're brilliant. And he predicted everything that would happen if we didn't control guns. And this is a man from Texas who had principle on this issue. But I was pounding uh, the desk at KPOJ saying that if we don't make the changes we need, this will happen again and again and again. You don't have to say it's prophetic. Of course it did. But Tom Hartman came in and said, Carl, you're pounding the desk. And I said, oh. And then his wife, Louise, came in and said, I like it. Keep pounding. So <laughs> I, well, I tend what? to go with in Louise on that one. In interest of saying G-rated, I'm not going to do any Lyndon Johnson Taylor jokes. I, I have 
to say that, you know, if pounding the table makes you feel better, that's good. Cause I want to give a plug for everybody focusing on their self care. This has been a hell of a week. I had a friend who said she cried at her desk because she got sick of seeing so many koala images and so many, you know, bombs falling. And, you know, it's just been overwhelming for people. I think people are really feeling quite, uh, quite stressed out and i just want to put a plug in for unplugging from the news for a while not this podcast of course <laughs> but uh you know we, you know, we, we try to have try to have some humor it, every once in a while and be uplifting stressful. it has been uh, uh, my personal stress has been in the last two days i lost two people who are very close to me uh, uh, uh uncle Irwin shapiro uh, died, uh, a beloved man, and a talent manager from L.A. who has been a dear friend of mine for many years, Joe Lauer. I'm died. sorry, Paul. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, and, and this might be a, a point. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, that's all right. This might be a point to mention our condolences to Nick Fish, who passed away at 61 of stomach cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, if you live in Portland, you know who Nick Fish was, longtime um, member of the, the city council. A Great man. public servant. He was. My condolences. I, I know Nick so well. He's also a button collector. He loved to collect Wendell Wilkie and New York items. His, his family held seats in, in Congress in, in, from New York. I met Joe Lauer in New York mm -hmm. uh, at the Improv on 9th Avenue and 48th Street back in the 60s uh, as we were standing in the back watching Bette Midler sing She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain When She Comes (laughs) with her piano player Barry Manilow pounding the keys. Yeah, that's right. And Joe and I have remained friends ever since. We would have lunches every Saturday when I was in L.A. at Arts Deli. Uh, Joe and I and three or four other people. And I really miss Joe. He got sick. He died. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, and and I, I will just say that the reason I bring this up, other than it's been in the news that Nick Fish passed away after a very brave fight and public fight against um, stomach cancer, that he was the kind of public servant that we need. Um, he, he never publicly criticized other members of the council. Um, he had that Hubert Humphrey optimism about him. He was engaged in many different pursuits that made this city better. And uh, rest in peace, Nick Fish. Moving right along. Conventional wisdom. Back to conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom says the battle for the Democratic nomination is now between two people, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Do you agree? No way. I don't agree with this. There's no way that Elizabeth Warren is So right, the, the conventional wisdom is not conventional. Well, I challenge the question. I don't think conventional wisdom is that it's down to two people yet. Um, you look at the poll of the polls. Right now in Iowa, there's two points separating Biden, Sanders, and Mayor Pete. So, And then uh, Warren's only five points behind the three men. So Iowa is anybody's contest right now. And wh- whoever wins Iowa is going to carry a lot of momentum. And certainly enough momentum into Iowa to win Iowa. So, for example, in uh, in New Hampshire, um, there are, I think, 10 points separate all the candidates. Anyone who wins Iowa could get a 10-point bump in New Hampshire. And anyone who wins Iowa and New Hampshire, they could, they could run the table. Well, you have to remember about Iowa, too, because it's a caucus. You have to have your first choice. You've got to have your second choice. Mm-hmm. Anybody who doesn't get 15 percent, you know, they drop out. It's a whole process. So the... When you poll people in Iowa, they might tell you who their first choice is, but they also have a second and a third choice, and they're paying a lot of attention. I've been schooled by Dylan for a bad question. (laughs) You know, um, actually, that was my question. Oh, come on. I could. You read it. So I've been schooled. But look, I I think Joe Biden has showed consistent national strength throughout, and and a lot of it is due to – uh, African-American support, name recognition, and so forth. I have to say, though, that I think what's unfolding now in the Middle East is going to play very well for Joe uh, Biden. Mm-hmm. He is, um, you know, he knows the players uh, of all the candidates we have. Of all it, the countries. Right. Although I, I have to say that being in Cong- in the Senate, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, I'm sure no players. Uh, but he was vice president for, for eight years. Uh, and I think his bona fides in, in foreign policy will probably help him. I don't agree with you, Dylan, that, that the winner of the Iowa can run the table. I don't feel that this year. I think people I'm are— I'm not sure you said that. Uh, I'm, you I'm, uh, yeah, get a bump. If, if they win Iowa and New Hampshire, they can well, get a bump. I, I, I don't know that that's Iowa and New Hampshire, that that's true this year because um, just for what I stated, I think there's going to be a lot of strength on Joe Biden's, uh, you know, for among African Americans. Uh, I will mention, by the way, just as a sideline, I don't know if anyone saw it, but Julian Castro, 
Castro endorsed Elizabeth Warren this yes, week. He did. My feeling about that is so he, interesting. He wants the vice president. Of course. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. that means he doesn't get it if Biden gets well, the it nomination. He doesn't get a counter position. No, 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 no. He wants if he wants Elizabeth Warren to get the nomination, which she yeah. will offer him. I actually think that will be a strong ticket. I agree. I, I, I think it will be. Um, Except in Pennsylvania, happens. Wisconsin, Michigan, <laughs> Florida, well, got demographics. Not, not necessarily. I, yeah. I, I, I think that um, that would be a balanced ticket. He's um, a male. He's a person of color. He's from the Southwest. Well, he's a he's a very competent guy. Agreed. Uh, and but I, and a I, smart guy. I like him. Um, I just that's all I'm going to say about this is I think Biden gets a, a bump from what's happening. Uh, not that he would want it to happen. Uh, but, yeah, they're all three, Biden, Buttigieg, and um, Sanders are bunched up mm-hmm. in the latest polls, almost equal. And then Warren is a little behind. Um, but, no, I, I I really don't think it's just between two people. And I, I, I do read reports. I read a, a story Politico just yesterday or maybe today. That's for that question. That that people are – Democrats are unsettled in Ohio. A lot of them think that Trump's going to win no matter who's nominated. They're concerned. We're all concerned. But again, this process runs a course and we run as a party and we want to attract as many – that's how we're going to win is to win the great majority of independents, win suburban voters, women voters – and again, if there are any anyone listening, you have to put away your prejudices for your candidates once the nomination. We cannot yes. have, we just cannot have the attrition of people not voting or voting third party that gave us Donald Trump. Learn from history. And you mentioned positivity and optimism. We have to be happy warriors. And so Nick Fish yeah. is a good uh, person yeah. to Talk, emulate. Talking about positivism, uh, let me point out negatively that Bernie Sanders <laughs> has been for the last two days attacking Biden with the exact same words he was using to attack Hillary Clinton. And that ain't good. It ain't good. Talk about yourself. Don't run down the other candidate. Tell us why you're better. You know, Tell us uh, why uh, Medicare for all right. is better than Medicare for all who want it. And, and really, the reason I think this happens, although you go back through history and there are great fights uh, among parties for the nomination. But what I think it is, is you need to say something so outrageous that it gets attention. Right. And especially in the world dominated by Trump's tweets and, and the, the power that he has to influence events. So I think that's why candidates do this, and they all kind of do it. Um, but, you know, again, unity. I want to say something that uh, might be kind of shocking that you won't hear anybody else say, which is, I don't really care who wins. <laughs> Iowa. Um, Biden's my fourth choice, but I like Biden. But it's between Bernie and Warren and Buttigieg, it's a wash. I mean, they all have their pros and cons. They all have their electability all arguments. All candidates have plenty of pros, but they also have plenty of but, cons. But it's, it's, when, I'm, when I'm talking to these Bernie people or these Pete people who just go crazy for their candidate and hate the other candidates, I, I mean, I'm a progressive. They're all progressives, guys. Like, I mean, I'll support them all. I mean, Biden's my not last Tulsi, choice, but that's a whole different. Story. I mean, Biden's my last choice, but not I would. You said not Tulsi. Oh, right. Uh, but I mean, even Biden. I mean, that's a pretty good last choice. I'll be. I will happily support him. You in know, I, I talked to Bernie people till I was blue in the face that on with Senate records, Hillary was just about as progressive as Bernie when you looked at all the issues. But it became such. Did a, she also name three post offices? It, stop. Stop. She. She. Uh, I'm. I'm defending Bernie here. Uh, <laughs> she. Uh, but you know, it was like people were radicalized that she was the face of evil to the extent where they said Trump would be a better president or less evil. We cannot go that route again. I think we're going that route right now. Okay. I think that Bernie is doing no, that. I don't think so. No, 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 no. All right, let's wrap up this uh, segment. Um, Talk about something you might not know. Oh, th- thank you, Kim. I love it. I love that. Um, uh, our, our podcast have gone sometimes a little over an hour, uh, but um, people keep listening. So let's go two hours. You're right for that. <laughs> uh, we do More a segment Carl jokes, on, please. on the Wolfpack uh, called "Things You May Not Know." Who wants to start us off? I do. I want to talk about animals in Australia. So I did a little research on animals in Australia. Ninety percent of the animals native to Australia are found nowhere else, including the kangaroo, koala, echidna. Don't know what that is. Dingo, platypus, wallaby, and wombat. Emu? No. Okay. Wallaby. 
Um, there were two uh, kind of interesting facts that stood out. One is there's something called an Australian Fitzroy River turtle that can breathe through their bottom. I thought you guys would like that. Breathe through their bottom? Yep. You, you're talking now. about the bottom of the shell. <laughs> Be careful now. The, 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 the <laughs> rear end of the of the animal. Oh, through, okay. Through I'm their not, uh, not. through their tail area. Right. Tail yes. end. <laughs> Uh, uh, the coccyx. Oh. I also learned. Oh no! I opened up a can of worms inadvertently. Uh, I also learned that a wombat's poop is cube shaped. So I thought those were two oh my goodness, interesting. That hurt. I thought those were two interesting Nat Geo. Facts. One wombat to the other. You put that square peg in that round hole. How are you doing with that? Okay, I learned something about koalas, which is that uh, they eat eucalyptus trees, which are toxic to most animals. But they have an intestine that can actually break down the toxins in the um, eucalyptus. But because their diet is so limited, uh, they can only have 10 minutes of activity per day in any kind of full body exertion. Sounds like Trump. And then lastly, <laughs> speaking of Trump. Executive time. Did he golf? Feed him some eucalyptus leaves. Yeah. Speaking of Trump, in this list of animals, I did find the Trump spirit animal. He's called the Tasmanian devil. And this is the description. Wildly vocal, the Tasmanian devil emits a constant deluge of guttural, gurgling, wailing, and growling noises with little, if any, instigation. And next week, Carl is going to come back and do that impression. Yeah, it really sounds like sex to me. <laughs> Especially the growling part. Dylan? Sure. Uh, I'd like to keep my uh, news you may not know positive. And so I wanted to circle back on our Michael Bloomberg talk that we had several weeks back. And I was particularly hard on Michael Bloomberg and him entering the race. I have a different tune now. Um, really? I do. Uh, in a report issue. And I love Bernie. See, wow. anything can happen, yeah. ladies and this gentlemen. Crazy. Well, we're, we're liberals. We can change, our, we can change our opinion as new evidence comes forth. That's right. Um, a report issued on Christmas Day. We learned that Michael Bloomberg, over a period of just three weeks, spent $120 million in television and digital ads, apparently policy in most of these. And these, <laughs> and these ads, many of them are – they're not just all pro-Bloomberg. Many of them are anti-Trump ads. And he's not running them in meaningless states like Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. He's running them in seven targeted critical swing states. And that number of $120 million is expected to hit $300 or $400 million by early March. And so the good news here is that the research has shown that these early targeted ads in swing states can make a difference because you get people's minds um, set earlier. It's harder to change later on. And so the problem up until now is that the Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party don't have the resources to spend money in these states. Well, now we have Michael Bloomberg doing the party's work for them with basically unlimited amounts of funds. And there's recently a Fox News op-ed on this that says Trump needs to be watching Michael Bloomberg. He's the one causing the most problems for him come Good. November. And so with these changes, uh, we have Bloomberg driving a narrative against Trump in a critical way that nobody else is doing in key states, and that is fantastic news. And willing to spend a yeah. billion dollars to do it. Well, he's worth $56 billion, so. Well, um, but he's willing to spend a billion. I love that, Dylan, and, and that's yeah, really great. And let me just that's add, by the way, mm -hmm. that there's no substitute for really solid candidates. In Arizona, which is a swing state now, in my opinion, uh, Mark Kelly is an excellent Senate candidate. Sure is. And the more people that he drives to the polls will also um, increase our chances of uh, Arizona being a blue state in the presidential election. And it was good. I think it was good that Mike Pompeo was not running for the Senate in Kansas. He would have had huge name recognition. Mm -hmm. So Democrats that just won the governorship in Kansas uh, in 2018 – have a shot, especially if uh, Republicans nominate uh, Chris Kobach. And also Bloomberg spending $10 million to do a 60-second Super Bowl ad. And uh, I think that's really uh, Mike, commendable. if you're listening, um, you can contribute to this podcast. We'd love to have your dough. I have such an inconsequential story. Okay. Comes back from the days in showbiz. And on one of my shows, Merv Griffin was a guest. And Merv Griffin <clears throat> told a story of when he was in Las Vegas doing his show – he was he was incredibly excited. He was incredibly excited by an act he saw, and he decided he's going to book this act. I know this story. He's going to book it himself. He's going to produce it, and he's going to show his people what a great, great act he can put on the show. Showtime comes, rehearsal time comes. The guy shows up, and he's got one of those like Punch and Judy kind of stages this is on the Merv Griffin show. On the Merv Griffin show, and he's got a dancing duck, and he's going to come on with his dancing duck. And he's got the duck under the arm and he's got this like Punch and Judy stage. And Merv is there to greet him so proud of this guy. And Merv says, 
Okay, uh, where do you want to go? And the guy says, oh, he's holding an electric wire in his hand and says to Merv, where do I plug in? And the, uh, and the Merv says, plug in what? What do you need to plug in for? And the guy says, I got to plug in for the hot plate. What do you think makes the duck dance? <laughs> this is dedicated to all the animals in Australia who have lost their lives. Ouch. <laughs> anyway, anyway that, is, that was Merv, and he was a little bit humiliated, I might say, by that experience. By the way, he told that story on one of the shows I produced. I don't know if he told it. It's true or it's not true, but it was a cute story. You know that cautionary tale in show business, kids and animals – Unpredictable. Really unpredictable. I did Merv's show six times without a hot plate. Nice. (laughs) Um, All right. I love that story, actually. Um, Since I'm sitting here with Kim, who is a lawyer, and Dylan, who is a lawyer, and Paul, who went to law school for a while at NYU, and since you mentioned Tasmanian Devil, this will all fit very nicely and quickly. A guy named Gerald Mayo, M-A-Y-O. In 1971, there, there was a case filed before the United States District Court for the Western District of Pennsylvania in which Gerald Mayo alleged, quote, that Satan, Satan, S-A-T-A-N, has on numerous occasions caused plaintiff misery and unwarranted threats against the will of plaintiff, that Satan has placed deliberate obstacles in his path and has caused plaintiff's downfall, unquote, and had therefore, quote, deprived him of his constitutional rights, unquote. This is why he filed the case in U.S. District Court in western Pennsylvania. The court refused the request to proceed because the plaintiff had not included instructions for how the U.S. Marshal could serve process on Satan. There was no address for Satan, and therefore... Case dismissed? Case dismissed. Uh, if we had a case now, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, that would be a good address. <laughs> good address maybe the case would proceed. Well, uh, that's it for us. Thank you. A really good discussion and, and a lot of uh, fun uh, talk at the end there. I, I, I really am very, uh, very grateful uh, to be with Patrick Zahn, our producer, Kim Up and Dylan Hydes and Paul Block and... Uh, and Carl Wolfson. Yeah, well... well the finger know, pounder. Yeah, the finger pounder. Uh, we'll be on every week. Um, How about uh, our music? Uh, and the music and the music is provided by Brian Sussman. Yes, uh, thank you. And uh, if someone brings a hot plate next week, I'll do a dance. <laughs> thank you for listening. Remember, uh, WolfpackPDX.com. Be sure to rate us on your platform. We'll talk to you next week.